0: So as Jess said, beautiful Jess said earlier on, that this is the year of blessing and favor. Just a beautiful year of blessing and favor. And this morning, I've titled my message, Entitled to Blessing. And uh, it's got nothing to do with you deserving it. You are entitled to blessing. Why is that? Because of your relationship with God. You are an heir of God. A joint here with Christ, and that entitles you to blessing. Yeah. About 16 years ago, my father went to be with the Lord. What a wonderful thing it is to be at a place of relationship with Jesus that you know, from, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. So you just got this wonderful just understanding that, uh, that when you love Jesus, that when you exit this world, you go to his world, and um, you know, it's just—it's just a beautiful—it's a beautiful thought that is the hope that we have and the hope that we give people. Well, when my dad died, my mother inherited all that he had. That was—that was part of the deal. You know, the kids just got to wait a bit longer. That's all. But—but uh, but that was cool. And so she inherited the house, she inherited the car, she inherited the money, and uh, whatever money he had, she inherited. So. Uh, So this particular day that I was home, she said to me, Hey, John, I suspect that your father kept some cash stashed away in the ceiling cavity of the house. Can you go and check out to see if there's any... My my dad, you know, how how many of you know that people that went through the Second World War sort of had a bit of a tendency to hoard. Yeah. Yeah. You know the deal? So my, my dad was a bit of a hoarder, and so he'd run out of space around the house, and so he thought that the roof cavity was a great place to store stuff. And, and seriously, he'd store empty bottles up there, empty flagons up there, just just in case. You never know when you need an empty flagon. And so uh, and so I went up there, and there's bottles everywhere and stuff everywhere, and mum said, just look for tins. Look for tins because I suspect I think she saw the stash and dad hiding up there. And anyway, so I went up there and, and I pulled all the flagons out and there's this tin, an old Milo tin. And so I open up the old Milo tin and it's full of twenty dollar and fifty dollar bills. Just couldn't believe I mean it's just and so then I'm looking, hey, I found something! Woohoo! She says, look for some more. And I, Look for some more. And so, and so I'm going through the roof cavity and I found another one, another 10. I thought, oh, look at this one. And it was full of $20, $50 notes. And so I brought them downstairs, and my mother gratefully accepted them, gave me a couple, and uh, not the 10s, just the notes. <laughs> but the point that I'm wanting to make was this. My mother received all the inheritance. It was, it was all hers. But there was some of the inheritance that was hidden. It still belonged to her. Yeah. But someone had to go and find it yeah. to get it. It was hers. But it needed a bit of digging, yeah. a bit of seeking. And, and I really believe this, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. But what happens with us is that sometimes we don't live enjoying all the blessings because we don't know what we're entitled to. Yeah, that's right. And so we live deficient. We live below the line instead of above the line. Yeah. And so this morning, I don't want you ever to have an excuse as to why you shouldn't be blessed. I want you to have reason to believe If I'm not blessed, then there's something I can do about it because God's entitled me to blessing. I'm entitled to live in blessing. Why? Because I'm a child of God. I'm a a joint heir with Christ. I'm an heir of God. I'm entitled to blessing. It's not because I deserve it. It's not because I do good works for it. It's because of my relationship to the King that He wants me to be blessed. Come on. I want everybody to say God wants, God wants me blessed. Now, let me also push pause for a second and say this. If you weren't here last week, you need to get hold of last week's message to understand what blessing is. Because one of the things that happens in life is that we try to define blessing in our own terminology rather than biblical terminology. And so last week, what I did is I spoke about, let's Let's define blessing biblically rather than what we think blessing is. Because if you think that that if everything always goes perfect for you, you're blessed. Well, let me tell you, who do you know that has everything going perfect for them? Is there anyone here that always has everything going perfect for them? Is there anyone here like that? Well, does that mean that none of you are blessed? Is there, is there someone in the Bible that always had everything Going perfect for them. You say, Jesus did. He got crucified. (laughs) Well, What do you call that? Huh? The point is this. That we need to define blessing biblically, not what we think it is. And can I tell you that one of the promises of God for you is that as a Christian that's blessed, you will have trials and tribulations. It's part of the package deal. Well, then that means that I'm cursed. No, 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 not at all. God promises you blessing in the midst of trial and tribulation. I'm telling you, you find the lily of the valley in the valley. And in the valley, there is a treasure to be found one of the promises of God is this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so even though you might be facing a trial, even though you might be facing a tribulation, you can still be blessed. Why? Because God's presence is with you. Can anybody say amen to that? Come on, you've got to live in the understanding that His presence is His blessing for you. Okay. I want to share with you a story in the Bible. And it's a fascinating story. It's found in Numbers chapter 22 about... The fact that nobody can reverse God's blessing over your life. Numbers 22 says this. Uh, Let me read verse 12. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Let me give you the background to the story. Are you interested in the background? So what you have is this. You've got the children of Israel had left Egypt they have been released from the bondage of slavery under the domination of Pharaoh. They'd had the Red Sea open for them, and they'd gone through the Red Sea, and they were journeying to Canaan, the promised land, the land flown with milk and honey. It's just the imagery and the metaphors in that are just beautiful. When you go back and you look at what it is, and, and he, the children of Israel are a metaphor of the people of God. Living in Egypt is a metaphor of living in in bondage, in slavery, in bondage. And that's what we were like before we were saved. Living under the dominion of Pharaoh is a metaphor of living under the dominion of Satan who keeps you a slave, who keeps you subjected. Yes, he does give you a few onions and a few leeks and keeps you supposedly happy. But the dominion and the suppression and the bondage certainly doesn't cover the wages. Then a savior comes and gives them a way out. And takes them through the Red Sea, which is a metaphor of baptism. And they're journeying towards the promised land, which is a metaphor of us journeying to all the promises that God has got for us. And then on the journey, they encounter all sorts of enemies that try to hinder their walk which is a metaphor of the fact that on our journey, we too will confront enemies that will try to hinder our walk. But the beautiful thing is this, they defeated the enemy. No enemy was able to stand before them all the days of our life, which is the promise that God gives us, that nothing shall be able to stand before us all the days of our lives. If God before us, who can be against us? Come on, is anybody else excited about this but me? The advantage of being in the 11 o'clock service is that the nine o'clock's the practice run. you get the real deal, <laughs> see? <Seth. laughs> so so we're we just practicing, we just get warmed up in the first service, and then watch out. In the second service, you get it. Game on. And, uh, and, and so, so what happens is this is that there's this the king of Moab called Balak. He's getting all the stories. About these people. He gets all the stories about all the kings that have been demolished on their journey. He gets he gets to hear that nothing is able, not even the power of Egypt was able to stop these people. And he's thinking, Oh, these people are blessed. These people are blessed. They're incredibly blessed. And then he looks and he sees on the list that he's next on the list to get demolished. And he thinks to himself, what can I do? what can I do? I know what I'll do. I'll go and hire a prophet to curse them. And so he calls for Balaam, the prophet, and and, and offers Balaam big money to come to curse the people. And God speaks to Balaam and says, Balaam, get this straight. Get this clear. You cannot curse what I've blessed. You get this? They've been blessed by me and you can't reverse it. You cannot reverse the blessing of God. Hello, there is a message there. There is a message for your life that Satan cannot reverse what God has started. There is no power on earth that is more powerful than the power of God. If God has spoken blessing into your life, then don't you believe for a second that the enemy can reverse it. Don't you be afraid of the curse because you have been destined for blessing. So, big story. Balaam gets there and he says to Balak, hey, listen, I've had a big encounter with God. God slapped me over the knuckles. God's given me a hard time. And let me tell you something. I can only do what God tells me to do. He says, Well, well, I'm going to give you a room full of gold and silver. Just curse the people. And and Balaam says, Listen, understand this. I can only do what God tells me to do. He says, Well, okay. Well, let's go up there and curse the people. Okay. So they get up on the hill. And Balaam starts speaking what God gives in his heart. And he speaks blessing over the people. And Balak is just raging with anger. What are you doing? Commanded you to curse these people and your blessing. And Balaam says, I can only do what God tells me to do. He says, Let's go to another hill. Maybe we can get a better angle on this, okay? (laughs) So they go to the next hill and get a better angle. And okay, the anointing comes upon Balaam and he starts prophesying and he's blessing him again. And Balak, he is ropeable. And he says, What are you doing? These are my enemies. I'm paying you to curse them. And he says, told you i cannot do anything but what god tells me to do and if god has blessed these people i can't curse them third time the fourth time the whole story by this time balak is beside himself the bible gives a picture of a guy just pulling his hair out just stomping the ground and saying just shut up whatever you do just don't say anything you're blessing them more instead of cursing them so So Now, Balaam was not a cool character. Balaam had his own agenda. And so, yep, his anointing was dependent upon him obeying God. But then he's got this this temptation of a room full of gold and silver. So he says to Balak, hey, listen, I can't do anything else but prophesy what God tells me to prophesy. But can I give you another strategy? He says, what's that? And in Numbers 31, this is called... The Council of Balaam. And it's repeated in the New Testament the Council of Balaam. And this was the Council of Balaam. You can't undo what God has blessed. But what you can do is get them to sabotage their own blessing. Wow. What a lesson for us. Here it is, the lesson for us. And so, and so let, let, let me tell you the story before I get to the lesson. The story is this. And so, and so then Balaam counseled them how to get the children of Israel to sabotage the blessing. And he says, just get them to disobey God. Just get them to commit immorality. Get them to worship idols. And if you get them to do that, then the blessing will stop because they've sabotaged their own blessing. And so you can read about this, that what happens is that Moab, Balak, the king of Moab, gets all these pretty young things to go down into the valley and, and all the boys from uh, children of Israel just saw the pretty young things and it was all about lust and all about immorality and, and uh, before you knew it, they were doing immoral things with the pretty young things and then the pretty young things say, hey, come on, let's go and have a good time with the idols. Let's go sacrifice to the idols. And let me tell you, when a soul tie is created, when a soul... See, l- l- can I just press, press pause there for a second and, and talk to you about sex for a little while? You say, "Oh, that wasn't in the first service. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> can I just say that the whole... Sex was invented by God. and It was invented by God for married couples. And it's God's wedding gift for a married couple on their wedding night. And what it is, I mean, even in Western countries, we call it the consummation. And what it is in this consummation, it's actually, it's like a glue that God uses to join a husband and wife together where the two become one. And, and if, if I could give you an illustration, it's an illustration with a sticky piece of paper. And so if you can imagine two sticky pieces of paper. And so what happens on the wedding night, the two sticky pieces of paper come together and they get glued and they become one. The fact is this, that that sticky piece of paper, if you connect it to another sticky piece of paper that's not your spouse and you walk away from them, then you try pulling apart two pieces of paper with glue something of one piece of paper is on the other and something of the other piece of paper is on and so soul ties are connected and 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 it doesn't feel right and there's rejection and there's abandonment and there's all these issues that take place and and god's trying to protect us from that and so he's trying to protect us by saying just stay faithful to your spouse now for me that revelation it just keeps me so faithful. It just keeps me, because I understand what it's all about. And so, and so when Anne and I got married, both virgins, we said, wow, that's pretty intimate. It's called being vulnerable. But it's also understanding that when two pieces of paper that are sticky get together, 33 years later, they're stuck. And there's no, there's no, there's no desire to get unstuck. There's no desire to be tempted by some pretty young thing. What, what is that? What is that? Why would I unstick from that which is precious to stick with something that is just that just is, is passing, fleeting, and then destroy that which is precious to chase something that's flimsy and doesn't last. What is that? What is that? What is that? And this is what Hollywood doesn't understand. This is what the people of this world don't understand because they offer the picture of sex as this wonderful picture of wonder. But they don't show you the aftermath and the devastation and the pain and the anguish that's left behind the trail of people that are left behind having tasted but not fully understood what it's all about. Yeah, good. And what they don't understand is this, is that married couples that are faithful to each other, understand the way that God has made it and connected, are the ones that enjoy life. Yeah. so, so get, okay so that's pause gets back on play let's go back again that was just a throwaway i don't know just for somebody the holy spirit just asked me to do that and so just being led by the spirit there so he's these these you know the, the the moabites the midianites these these people that are ungodly leading the children of israel to worship idols and all of a sudden the blessing was sabotaged and the bible says that rather than them living in health and, and all the stuff that God had for them, a plague hits the camp. And 24,000 people died. Until Moses got up and he said, man, we've got to do something about this and turn the whole thing around. They repented. They, they, they saw the error of the way. They saw the sabotage. They turned the thing around and God delivered them and they were back in the blessing again. Okay, so what's the lesson for us? The lesson for us is this, is that the enemy cannot reverse the blessing upon your life, but he will cause you to sabotage the blessing. He will try to do everything in his power to get you to sabotage the blessing upon your life. And he does it two ways. He does it through the means of disobedience and through the means of getting you to believe his lies. So let's talk about the means of disobedience because this is what happened to the children of Israel. They got sabotaged because they disobeyed God. God told them, don't you fall into immorality with the, with, with the people of the land. Don't worship idols besides worshiping me. They disobeyed and bang, they sabotaged the blessing. What's God saying to you right now? Because I'm telling you, the place of blessing is the place of obedience. You've got to get that worked out. That God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. But it is conditional on you obeying and walking with God. You, you, you want to walk away from God, you will sabotage yourself every time. Yeah. And this is the way the enemy tempts. You've you got to get hold of this. This is the way the enemy works. He will make you think that the road of disobedience is the easy road. And so here it is. You look at the road of disobedience and it's sugar-coated. It's sweet. It's just, you know, it's full of the dancing girls. Ooh, 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 ooh. Come and follow us. Ooh, 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 ooh. And it's just, it's just, it looks so pleasant. But I'm telling you that the end is destruction. That the road of disobedience will always become The hardest road of your life. Man alive. Just do some interviews with some people that have made wrong choices. And they've always taken the road of disobedience. They get down the path and here and they're saying, oh, if only I could have done it again at that intersection. I would not have taken the road of disobedience. I would have taken the road of obedience. Do you know what? The road of obedience will always look like the hardest road. Yeah. The road of obedience. Oh, obedience. Oh, follow me. Come to the easy road. And you're looking at obedience and it looks tough and it looks hard. And there's faith required and there's, there's commitment required. And there's these, there's these character things required. No character required here. No integrity required here. Oh, it looks looks so hard. Can, Can I tell you, it might look like the hardest road, but as you walk on it, it becomes the easy road. And you get here and you say, thank you, Lord, for showing me this road. Thank you, Lord, that I took the hard road, but it's become the easy road. And you're walking down and it's just, it's just so much easier. And then you're looking at your friends that took the wrong road and their lives are a mess. There's brokenness. There's divorce. There's anguish. There's rebellion. There's kids hating them. There's family division. There's hatred and stuff. And you're looking at your friends that took the road of obedience and there's harmony and marriage and loving each other. and It's just awesome. Do you know? you know, I've got my mother and father-in-law in this room right now. And they can testify that Ann and I have been married for 33 years. They've lived in our home many times. They still come on weekends whenever they can. And over 33 years, we have never had one crossword. They can testify. Isn't that true? Never one argument, never a crossword. Our home is Filled with peace and harmony. Why? Because we decided to take the road of obedience, and it's the road of blessing. Same with, same with my mum. I mean, Christmas time comes, and the family's at peace. We just love each other. It's just awesome. There's no funny. We're well, we not say that. We're not walk that. We're we not do that. Who's going to be at one, two, three? Obedience. Let me tell you the second thing. This is really important. The second thing that the enemy uses to tempt you to sabotage you. Is that he'll tempt you to believe a lie. And this is the way the enemy gets you tricked. These are the schemes of the enemy. How many of you know the Bible talks about the schemes of the enemy? He's the deceiver. And he will try to trick you into believing his lies. He's the father of lies. Jesus said that he is a liar. He's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And 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 this is one of his tricks. This is one of his schemes. This is his modus operatum, his Emma. His the way that he works is this. He presents a lie in a way that it doesn't look like a lie. And you believe it. This is how we started in the Garden of Eden. You read Genesis chapter 3. The very first introduction of the enemy in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3. And he comes into the form of a serpent to Eve. And you know the story, they're in the Garden of Eden, and he says to Eve, so what did God say about the fruit? And Eve says, well, God says that in the day that we eat of the fruit, we shall surely die. Now, get hold of this. God said, she's quoting God. So here's Satan. That's not what God said. You will not surely die. And so he turns the whole thing around. He says, you know what? Can I tell you something about God? He's a deceiver. See, God told you not to eat of that fruit because he knows, number one, you're not going to die. He's he's the liar. And number two, what he didn't tell you is that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll become just like God. Don't you want to be like God? Yeah. Well, who are you going to believe, God or me? I believe you, Satan. Satan come on. And so this is the way the enemy works. So let me ask you a question. What lie are you believing from the enemy today? He's some of the lies that he tricks people with. I don't know how many times I've heard people come to me and say, and say, pastor, you know, uh, God has forsaken me because I've committed the unpardonable sin. Maybe somebody's here today that feels that God has deserted them because they've committed the unpardonable sin. So this is my response to them. I said, hey, listen, do you feel remorse for your sins? Yes, I do. If God could forgive you, would you like God to forgive you? Yes, I would love that, but, I, but he can't because I've committed the unpardonable sin. Then I stop them and I say, let me tell you something. The unpardonable sin has to do with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you've committed the unpardonable sin, the Holy Spirit actually leaves you. And you have absolutely no remorse for your sin. You have no recognition of sin. Because you have remorse, because you want forgiveness, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. All that's happened here is that you've believed the lie of the devil. It's blocked you from blessing. And right now, I renounce the lies. And I say, if you want to get saved, it's time to get saved and get right with God. Come on. Can anybody say amen to that? He's another lie of the devil. Your significance is connected to your performance. And so there's this connection between performance and significance. Oh, why is that? Because in life, when you went to school, and who were the most significant kids in school? The people that won the carnivals, you know, people that came first, you know, the, the ones the ones that just, was it you, Marcus? You, yeah, one, yeah, Marcus, yeah. And so, so what happens? Only one person can win the race. So what's the story? One person wins the race, they're significant. Everybody else, you're insignificant. That's rubbish. That's total rubbish. Can I just say to you that my children are my children, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. doesn't matter what they do. They don't stop being my children. My children are my children because they're my children. Brought them into the world. And you better believe I can take them out. No, I'm going to go there. <laughs> That's the Godfather speaking. Sorry. Just, it just comes over me every now and then. The point of the matter is this, that your significance does not come through your performance with God. Your significance comes because you're a child of God. That's right. And you will always be a child of God. And so the enemy says, oh, you didn't perform well this week. God hates you. And you go, there's no God hates me. God hates me. God hates me. No, no, no. God loves you because you're his child. He wants you to get to a higher level, but he doesn't stop loving you. God's got great things for you, but he doesn't stop loving you in the process. In the process of becoming all that you can be, God loves you. And so there's too many people today that are on their search for significance because they've believed the lie of the devil, that they're insignificant until they get this. And so it doesn't matter who they stomp on to get what they want. They've tied position to significance what a terrible thing it is to tie your position to significance you know one one of the things that i've discovered is this that you don't need to tell me that i'm a pastor for me to know that i'm a pastor no but well well you know you'll never find me saying if you call me john oh pastor john oh pastor john care i know i'm a pastor you don't have to tell me oh but it's a sign of respect if you want to give that that's fine but i don't demand it why because my significance is not tied in to being told i'm a pastor do you understand that so too many people are searching for significance because they believe the lie of the devil that they're not significant and the fact is you're a child of god you are totally significant significant to god